Greetings, this is Kurt. Welcome to the second part of the three divisions of Book One. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and start with Episode One of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, please make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. As always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com slash the Harkin Theater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, me, I prefer tea with cream and sugar, the donation website coffee.com is spelled ko-fi.com slash the Harkin Theater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling Part 2 Agents of the Dark One A Prince's Second Soldier Busy, busy, adults are blind To the adventures their aging leaves behind In soul, not the mind Chapter 1 In a circular stone-walled chamber on the third floor of a Magian Alliance tower Master Enchanter Rothson bent over his desk amidst several candles And attended to an epistle to his colleagues the surrounding quiet disturbed only by the gentle scratchings of his quill on parchment. An old cat was curled in a ball of gray fur, sleeping comfortably atop a stack of curling parchment. The candle flames wavered slightly in the cool draft drifting through the windows. His face crinkled, yet kindly, with age. Rothson's intense green eyes belied the frail image he patiently portrayed as he scratched out symbols with a blue feather between attentive dips in the inkwell. When they came, their forms appeared soundlessly just inside the door. All the candles went out at once, plunging the chamber in darkness. Rothson's cat jerked awake and yowled a warning. The master enchanter spun around to see three silhouettes against the opposite window, their outlines vague in the dim wash of starlight. Seeing nothing but their swords at first, with a silent command he invoked a hemispherical wall of gold-white light that sprang up between him and the intruders, flooding the room with stark brightness. Upon recognizing them from Marie's description, he gripped the desk behind him with fear. Wavering against his shield, three specters stood with curved swords drawn, the empty hoods of their white cloaks focused on him. His cheek trembled, but he spoke fearlessly. You were not summoned by me, agents of the two-headed god. I command you cease violating my space. You hold no reign over us. And you have none over me. Your efforts are wasted here. 
The enchanter drew himself to his full height, his shadow falling over them, his hand gesturing them away. Avant! Your command means nothing. Rothson allowed fury to show in his eyes, yet concealed his sudden worry over Marie's safety. Because of her involvement with Paul, would the specters also come for her? I can destroy you if I so wish. Do not anger me further. To destroy us would merely delay the inevitable. We are empowered by universal law. The middle specter moved forward a step, his blade's edge glinting in the witchlight of Rothson's shield. You cannot escape your karma. Spare me your games. You aren't lords of karma to make judgment concerning my life's deeds. I am neither sorcerer nor mage, and I have no truck with entities such as you, nor do I care to deal with the two-headed god. There is no deal offered. You have no choice. Rothson crossed his arms confidently. Then destroy me. The entity was undisturbed by its apparent impotence against the wall of light. Either you die now, or others will be sacrificed to meet the debt. Others? The enchanter squinted an uncertain eye at them. Spectres didn't make idle threats. What gives you this right? Your error. Error? You initiated the violation of the universal laws of balance and intervention. Violation? He knew he had infringed on the law of causation somewhat by reaching into another era to find the Prince of Light, but there had been no outright transgression. Time was fluid and, for those who knew how, flexible when handled carefully. You prevented our nullifying and balancing the event. On the contrary, faceless one, you made a neat task out of Paul when he was here twelve moons ago. He remembered Marie's tale of how the entities had suddenly appeared and attacked Paul a short while after they had brought the crown prince home. Though he shared Marie's distress, he had been powerless to find out what happened to Paul. You completed your nullifying in quick order. Have they indeed killed him? The lead specter gestured with a careless talon. Regardless of our previous task work, change has occurred. Rifts have resulted. A dynamic link is established. A new order is imminent. Rothson scowled at the specter's ability to make laconic statements without revealing anything specific. A link? A new order? What do you mean? His questions were ignored. Your interference with our mission on the other world was your error. Rothson blinked at the speed with which his unspoken complaint was answered. The entity had just revealed how far-reaching were the Enchanter's own powers, and he was stunned. Other world? His wide eyes wandered about the room as he comprehended the enormity of his mistake. Paul had not merely been brought from another time, but from an entirely different world altogether. No wonder the lad was so confused. And yet, such a thing happening by accident is next to impossible. Paul had been the one we sought. No other legendary being was reputed to have the power of shape-shifting to a giant eagle. 
Any other time, he would have considered the puzzle at length, but with the demons at the door hungering for his blood, he was forced to put concerns of the past aside. Spectres were not mischievous creatures, their purpose that of serving the whims of the Dark One, who sought to keep the lower planes of existence in continual chaos. Demons enforcing metaphysical law. They did not act on presumption, but on the simple truth. He had held the specters back from Marie long enough for her and Paul to escape. For that a price must be met. But he was an enchanter, directing a myriad of forces, not coercing energies and entities as sorcerers were wont to do. To challenge his actions was to challenge a superior will. I prevented your intervention through the power allowed by the audible life current. No. The specter pointed an accusing claw at him. You interfered by your power alone. No higher force was evoked. Rothson leaned wearily on his desk as if a great weight had fallen on him. By the gods, no. Had he been so engrossed in getting Paul's help that he had slipped? At the same instant, he knew there was no question, no doubt in their accusation. Though their powers and purposes were controlled by the dark powers, specters could not speak untruths. Debts must be paid. Rothson stood motionless for a long time, his head turned, his eyes staring blankly at his papers. Being different from mages, enchanters were carefully disciplined in channeling power from the higher forces, thus avoiding self-destruction. For an enchanter to invoke the energies of his own life was to flirt with disaster, and was a fatal mistake when dealing with the negative powers of the two-headed god. Perhaps subconsciously he had feared relying on anything other than himself to hold back the specters at that crucial moment. And now for that single lapse of discipline, I am going to die. He could not oppose the powers of the Dark One without causing catastrophe to others. He finally broke the stillness with a loving stroke upon his cat's back. His furry companion, his wardmate, had settled on its haunches while observing the confrontation, its tail flicking dangerously. Other world. He slid his eyes back to the entities. The gateway I invoked was more powerful than I expected. What is this dynamic link you mention? It is not of your concern any longer. You were the catalyst, and that is all that matters. Debts must be paid. And by this unforeseen error have I allowed you power over me. All components of this event and the dynamic link will be destroyed. Balance restored. Components. His worst fear was now realized. In his error, he had endangered Marie and his king. These are human lives. You cannot simply end their incarnations. They are not responsible. The specter elevated its unseen head slightly, the hood focusing directly upon the master enchanter. At each point of balance and correction, free decision was made. Each component is responsible. How can you... He stopped, realizing the futility of argument. 
These were beings without soul, possessing absolutely no compassion for life. He sighed heavily, lifted his gray cat from the desk, and cradled him in his arms tenderly. I am responsible. Of that, I offer no argument. I have no choice now. Only retribution. You mean death. What of the Grems and their retribution? The Empty Hood did not reply. Of course. The Two-Headed One doesn't concern himself with the pain and struggle he creates. But if something threatens his false omnipotence even slightly... He shook his head. My blind eyes be damned. I start a chain of events to save the life of my prince and king only to sacrifice others. I am responsible. But there must be an alternative to more deaths. He was an old man, this life's road mostly behind him. But Marie was yet to realize her life's prime. She must not die. He searched the eyes of his wardmate and found something hopeful. Though what he was thinking was dangerous, the death sentences he sought to undo had already been decreed. It was a matter of trying to outmaneuver the specters, tilting the balance back into the light. One course, the only one left to him now, could be done if Paul still lived in his other world. Another depended on fortune and the spiritual awareness of someone not yet involved. Yes, there may be an alternative. He stopped, not wanting to reveal his thoughts to the specters, then scratched behind his cat's ears and received a purr of appreciation. It's up to you. There will be no further delay. The specter moved forward another step. Matters hang unbalanced. Debts must be paid. You understand, Rothson said to his cat. He comes even now. Find him. I will be waiting for you beyond the veil, my friend. The aged feline squeezed his eyes slowly at his master and rested a paw on his hand. Rothson released his companion onto the floor. Go now. I will be with you. The cat dashed through the shield of light between the waiting specters and scratched at the door, which swung open slightly in response. With one last long look and a mournful meow, he was gone. Ignoring the enemies awaiting him, Rothson turned away and reached for a small, plain box tucked behind a stack of books. Cradling it in both hands, he held it close to his chest and silently opened the lid. The gleam of tarnished silver reflected the witchlight of his shield still shimmering in the air between him and the specters. The only alternative, for I am already dead. Slowly, deliberately, he curled his fingers around the blue stone-inlaid silver medallion, lifted it from the box, and regarded his clasped hand. Forgive me, my children, my friends, my master, but if there is a chance for this to be stopped... Knowing the power for the evocation required all his attention, he prepared to release his shield, hoping his sacrifice would not be in vain, hoping he could complete the spell before he was gone. Debts must be paid. Master Enchanter Rothson spread his arms upward, the medallion still gripped in one hand, and looked beyond the ceiling. 
I appeal to the brotherhood of the lower circles to find a way to break this karmic chain and prevent any further killing dictated by my error. For this... He dropped his arms and held the medallion close to his body. Do I accept the unavoidable responsibility? The shield of gold-white light flickered, then vanished. With his fingers clenched tightly around the talisman, he gathered hope and focused all his strength. Taking a breath he knew was his last, he shut his eyes. Rekessa At that moment he gasped, fell to his knees, and clutched the medallion to his chest. The specters were upon him instantly, their curved swords hacking into him. When he offered no resistance except to sprawl with one fist under him, they clawed at him furiously with their talons, rending flesh from bone, limb from limb, as if trying to destroy every atom of his shell. Blood splattered the walls and spread across the floor. Rothson's last scream of agony was cut short as his head was severed from his body. At that moment, everything in the chamber burst into flame with a roar. The specters were gone when the mangled pieces of the corpse began to char in the conflagration, consuming the entire top of the tower. So, she dumped me. Paul's eyes were down, following the edge of the sidewalk as he plodded his way through the lower campus to his dormitory, one hand gripped tightly around the satchel strap hanging from his shoulder, the other clutching his keys. She said I was obsessed with my fantasy about Marie, and impossible to tolerate. And though he agreed he had probably talked to Annie about the adventure too much... That doesn't mean I'm obsessed with it, does it? All he wanted was to share the experience with someone he trusted. It certainly isn't something you told everyone without being called crazy. And instead of listening and understanding my need to talk about it, she got jealous. Paul slowed and stopped in his tracks, his eyes seeing only the picture etched in his mind of her staring at him with those beautiful brown eyes as she spoke the words that broke his heart, shattered his dreams. I was certain she was to be the one. What's down there? A friendly tap on his shoulder snapped him back to the present, and he glanced up at his lanky, red-haired friend peering back at him through heavy black frames. My heart. Excuse me? Bill's eyebrows lifted slightly. In a thousand tiny pieces. He pointed at his forehead with his keys. I was staring at something up here. He wanted to fling out his arms and scream to the sky with all the overwrought dramatics he could muster. She dumped me! Bill half-smiled. That's where I find a lot of my problems, too. Care to, uh... It's nothing I want to talk about. Right now, anyway. Sure. Bill managed to shrug. I understand. He looked uncomfortable as he apparently debated whether or not to say anything further. Paul decided to rescue him. Did you need something? Just, uh, just, just curious as to where you were heading. I haven't played chess with you this week, and I wondered, you know, if we could, uh... Thanks, but not just now. 
I've got some heavy stuff on my mind. Right. Bill nodded once, then ventured a witticism. Don't give your brain a hernia. Too burdened to notice the levity, Paul managed a lift of his head. Sure, Bill. Later. And he was alone again. Watching his friend disappear through an entryway, he found his thoughts returning to their lamentations. He fought back tears for a few moments, then decided it would be better to deal with his sorrows in the privacy of his own room, and made his way across the quad and up the stairway to his floor. With relief, he found the hallway empty of others, which allowed him freedom to mutter openly as he scolded himself for allowing Annie to get the best of him. It's over, you twit. Should have known better than to date someone younger, less mature than you. He paused to scowl at a scrawled message on a neighbor's door. I love you, Ken. And deduced from the handwriting that Ken was on his third girlfriend since the fall trimester began. Funny. This girl moans like his second one. He recalled a night of lost sleep due to the noise permeating the walls from Ken's room. Freshman. Stupid freshman. Kids. They think sex is love. What do they know? He found it ironic that in the year he had spent with Annie, they had never once made love. They had discussed it several times, generally, and had enjoyed light intimacy, but had not taken that final step. At the same time, he had never been one to regard sexual relations casually. To him, such a thing was the privilege of a serious relationship, not the foundation of one. Of this viewpoint, he knew he was probably unique among his peers. He shook his head with disgust and went to his door, snapped the deadbolt open as loudly as he could, then locked and unlocked it several times just to hear it echo down the hall. Screw this nonsense! He intensely disliked losing control of himself, even in small ways. It reminded him of his mother's tirades, and he had vowed never to be like her. Remembering his therapist's advice, he took several deep breaths and pushed the door open. What a dump. Entering the dimly lit room awash with a clutter of furniture, books, papers, and clothes, he dropped his satchel into a green leather chair the one piece of his childhood he had lugged around since coming to college, partly because he found dormitory furniture, though functional, not very comfortable, and partly because it was the only pleasant part he had left of the unhappy home he had escaped. Easing the Venetian blinds open to allow the late afternoon sunlight to wash through the tall window, he dropped into his bed and shoved aside the snake-like twist of covers. Drowsiness soothed over him as he sank comfortably into the cool sheets. Untethered, his mind wandered, allowing his heartaches to surface again. What I wouldn't give to feel Annie cuddling next to me once more, or to taste one of her lingering deep kisses. But no, I didn't even rank a farewell hug. Paul squeezed his fists tight against the emptiness gnawing at his gut. Their relationship had deteriorated after his experience with the Spectres and Marie. Or dream, or fantasy, whatever. He wasn't really sure anymore. Unconsciously, his eyes followed the brush patterns in the plaster ceiling. 
His mistake had been telling and retelling his adventure to Annie until she grew irritated with him each time he mentioned it. Instead of her sharing in his excitement, as he would have hoped, she had misunderstood and grown jealous to the point of accusing him of having secret desires for another woman. Whether he did or didn't no longer mattered now. Annie is gone. He resisted the urge to tear the blanket clutched in his fingers. A longing voice whispered from deep within his heart, Marie, Marie, tell that stuff. My therapist has already analyzed Annie as a mother substitute, and Marie as a fantasy mother. Annie makes some substitute, a perfect substitute. I wonder what husband mom's up to now. Number five or six. In his own mind, Paul had never had a real mother, his own having been emotionally deficient and cold toward him, the unwanted child. She was a parent unit. As one friend called her, a biological entity serving as a one-time propagator of the species. Briefly, he reflected on his miserable childhood with a mother who drank excessively, imbibed cocaine intermittently, a habit she started years after he was born, fortunately, beat him frequently, and fought incessantly with any man who made the error of loving her. His father, Paul, had never known, having abandoned his mother shortly before his birth. Not that I could blame him. It was husband number four that tolerated her abuse only to turn around and take out his frustrations on her son. Only by his instinct for survival had Paul stayed home. He had to finish high school so he could be accepted at a college. Any college. Higher education was the only refuge he saw that would save him from ending up like many kids of his neighborhood. The poor gang members. Drunkards, drug addicts, petty criminals, and the unemployed. His acceptance to the drama school of the prestigious School of the Arts had been like winning a thickly iced chocolate cake after a lifetime of nothing but boiled cabbage. And once he began his college career, he resolved never to go home again. If you could call that a home, Marie... He drummed his fingers against his chest, outwardly irritated with the small voice that had ruined his relationship with Annie. His therapist had already deciphered the dream, or whatever it was. Marie represented the ideal mother. The specters represented the mother he knew, especially in how their power was strongest at night. She beat him only at night after she was drunk. Rothson was his missing father image who couldn't do anything to help or explain. Like his unknown father, Rothson had merely started the chain of events, but not been a part of their conclusion. And rescuing the prince was symbolic of Paul rescuing himself from the situation. Simple, really. Only Paul wasn't all that sure. He had only agreed with a psychological diagnosis because it was easier than arguing about it and having his therapist think he was somehow deranged. If it had been nothing but a dream, then how did I end up on the North Field at the crack of dawn? Despite the specter's statement that he would remember nothing, 
I remember everything. Right up to the agonizing instant when their swords cut through him, there was a flash, and he had come to lying on the dewy grass in the field with a terrible stomachache where the razor-sharp blades had sliced into him. On the horizon, the sunrise looked like the second sunset on Marie's world. Around him were white silhouettes shifting eerily, and he had thought for a moment that he and the specters were still outside the royal city. But it was only shapes in a writhing mist hanging in the air over the field. Or was it? Soaked with dew and shivering from the dawn chill, he had staggered back to his room, then went directly to the campus infirmary, where he was discovered to have a high fever. So serious was his condition that he was placed in the regional hospital. When he was released a few days later, he had had enough time to go over all the events in his memory and had run back to the field to find proof. But heavy rains had softened the ground and covered most of the field with shallow puddles. While his shoes got soaked by the squishy turf, he had searched for, but could not find, the hoofprints left behind by Marie's horse, Bomali, and by the specter's ghostly steeds. Or, at the very least, there was nothing definite. He thought he may have found a few. The field on the School of the Arts portion of the larger university campus was not one used very often. The school not associated with the athletic department of the main university, therefore, the field was not groomed regularly like a dedicated sports area would be. The entire sweep of grass and rain-stripped dandelions was uneven and covered with clumps and small bumps, making difficult Paul's task of locating proof of his strange adventure in the night. Of the mystic gateway, there had been several bruised and loosened mushrooms lying in the mud on the field, but nothing like the fairy ring through which he and Marie had crossed into her world. Now, six months later, therapy was doing its bit to make him doubt even more. So baffled had he been by the events of that night, day, that he had finally relented in his self-imposed rule of silence and told all to his therapist, who had plunged into the stuff with the relish of an archaeologist unearthing ceramic pots on an African dig. On his own, Paul had spent much of his leisure time reading fantasy books that featured journeys between worlds. Though enjoyable, he hadn't found anything to help him reclaim what he had lost. Sometimes he wished for the convenience of a tornado that would pluck him from the earth and drop him in the middle of Marie's world like Dorothy did in L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. From these fantastical accounts, he made a brief study of what was available about Egyptian mythology and stargates, then a fleeting glance at the more serious books concerning metaphysics and occult practices and their making of psychic gates into the other world, but he had found most of it, if not all, impossible to comprehend, let alone practice. And his instinctive repulsion of the black arts made him stop searching that avenue altogether. Time's relentless march and his own frustrations had dimmed the adventure until now it seemed nothing more than a dream. But it was so much more than just a dream. I know it. With Annie's love now denied him, he mulled over his conflicting feelings for the dark-haired young woman who had awakened him in the middle of the night, pestered him, doubted him, then delighted in him. 
and how he wished he could see her again. Marie was so very different from the girls he was used to parleying with throughout the college society. She was simple, yet complex, as all females, and, from what he could discern, deeply honest. Memory of her made him realize his own weariness of the facetious subterfuge so frequently played by those of his world. My world? He stopped tugging wretchedly on a corner of his blanket and tossed it aside with irritation. Her world? My world? What world? Being an actor and familiar with submerging himself into a different character and thusly a different world, he knew he could no longer afford to get lost in ravings about another world that he couldn't go to or even prove existed. There is only here. He sat up and scratched his cheek. And I'm stuck here. And Annie has dumped me. So let's hang it up already. He dropped his hand into his lap and stared at it, knowing his words were mere bravado, not his true feelings. He was terribly hurt with losing Annie. And he discovered just how lonely he felt inside. An isolation that had been his companion since his earliest memories. No father, no family, no home. Just here. But he wasn't ready to face it today. To hell with everything. He stood and grabbed his keys from off his desk. Time for a picnic. The approaching even sent shadows stretching alongside him as he walked up the slope with his small grocery bag, stopped at the top of the bank, and gazed hopefully at the north field, searching for a circle of mushrooms and wondering for the hundredth time if he would ever experience anything like that night again. Behind him, the sun was setting in a spectacular display of crimson, cloaked partially in the purple of an approaching storm front, while the sky overhead was streaked with rapidly fading wisps of ice clouds, a shining pink and muddy blue. Though he knew from his recent research that fairy rings were unusual phenomena and rarely, if ever, appeared in the same place twice, he still couldn't help looking for one every time he came to relax in the north field. Shrugging off his usual disappointment, he sat down in a randomly selected spot in the grass, dug enthusiastically into his bag, and brought out a quart of whole milk, some napkins, and a box containing half a dozen donuts, his favorite treat for those times when life was rough, things were bad, or he was depressed. Right now, all three applied. Flattening out the bag as a makeshift cloth, he set his milk down in the middle as an anchor, spread out a napkin, then opened the box and began the process of selecting the perfect first donut for his evening picnic. In the parking lot adjacent to the field were the occasional cough and roar of automobiles being started as day students and administration employees left for home. Soon the small rush of traffic subsided, the sun disappeared entirely behind the clouds, though twilight was still several minutes away. Taking his first bite of a donut and luxuriating in the glazed coating sweetness washing across his palate, he allowed the peaceful environment of the field to soothe his frayed emotions. 
ignoring the all-too-familiar pit of bleak loneliness lurking in the shadows of his thoughts, he turned his attention again to the frightening and wondrous adventure of that night six months ago. Annie's accusations and attempts at destroying his beliefs replayed in his mind for a moment before he shook them off. Why did she have such a hard time with it? For that matter, whatever happened to fairies and dragons and magic? Did they never exist? Or did they just fade away? Taking a long draft of the cold milk, he then wiped his lips with the back of his hand and looked down at his open box of donuts. I believe in you, Tinkerbell, and in you, Marie. Crickets chirped somewhere nearby. What else is there to believe in? He tossed his hands in the air with a feeling of disgust at his world. Politicians can't fix it, he said to his donut audience. And money can't fix it or the politicians. And love can't fix it if they don't want it. So that just leaves you and me. And therapist makes three. He grinned at his joke and snatched another donut from the box, following this one with a refreshing drink of milk, then looked up and watched the sky. After a few minutes, when the brightest stars had emerged in fading twilight, he laid back and closed his eyes, wanting to conjure up a picture of Marie from memory. Ideal mother image or not, he liked thinking of her. It eased the aching pit in his gut. A stray forelock of brown hair fluttered across her cheek in the wind. He reached over to touch her arm. A stab of something like electricity jerked through his body as a distant grumble of what could only be thunder sounded. Alarmed that his picnic might be interrupted by rain, he opened his eyes as a sudden gust of cold wind swept the field. Then he sat up, caught his carton of milk in mid-tumble, and blinked at the strange shift in the weather and looked around. The shimmering pillar of mist at the far end of the field left him dumbfounded, and he could only gape in amazement. The sudden sting of ice down his spine ignited panic as he also saw, out of the corner of his eye, three men in white jumpsuits and drawn hoods not too far behind him running toward the mist, their flat expressions strangely blurred in the fluctuating glow. His picnic forgotten, Paul jumped to his feet, scattering carton bag and donut box in the process. Hesitating only for a second, he made a quick decision and started running as fast as he could for the mist. Ignoring the frantic pleas of his mind for the how and why, he followed the powerful impulse that set his heart to throbbing and threw himself into a sprint, knowing somehow that he must outrun the three men in white, beat them to the other end of the field. A dreamlike sensation enveloped him as he ran, stretching his legs farther and farther ahead. There was no fatigue, no laboring to run, only exhilaration and a fleetness he had experienced in the dream state. Reminded of his and Marie's race for safety with specters at their heels, he heard the soft pounding of the other men's feet and knew they were close behind him. As they got closer, the dreamlike sensation drained away, and he felt the strain of the race, the hammering of his heart. 
Not daring to look and see how near they were, Paul pushed himself harder, letting his desperate hope and fondest dream guide him. The pillar undulated over the grass ahead of him, a thing of pale, faint light. Flickering at its base was a strange, humped shape, like that of someone bent over double. Thinking to jump over any possible obstacle, he reached his arms ahead. The word Marie shouted in their first race across the field reverberated from his memory. Rekessa! The curtains of mist enfolded him with vibrating energy and the ground fell away. A crimson streak shot down from the stars above and with a deep resonating hum enveloped him in the roar of a thousand engines. Everything around him, field, stars, the three runners, faded into the coruscating light and the trembling clamor. Wanting to scream with fright and joy, he could only run as fast as he could into the nothingness. Darkness boiled up and around him with an agonizing groan, and he tumbled into a howling hurricane of light and shadow. Bridge of Doom, Part 2, Agents of the Dark One. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices are performed by William Bloxham, Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, Ira Lively, Todd Suarez, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price, with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.